On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, today, November 27th, marks the anniversary of the death of Ross McQuarter, shot by the IRA in 1975. Now, to younger generations, his name might not be all that familiar, but his work certainly is, because Ross was the co-founder of the Guinness Book of Records, a franchise which has gone on to sell more than 100 million copies in its nearly 70-year history. But how did the annual book come to be? And what led to the death of its founder in such circumstances? Well, Donald Fallon is here for his usual hidden history to tell us all the story. Uh, Donald... Always a sign that Christmas is approaching uh, when the Guinness Book of Records appears. I suspect it, much like Three Castles Burning, it'll appear in many, many Christmas stockings four weeks' time. Yeah, the Beano Annual. You know, there's a couple of books that pop up and you go, oh, it's Christmas. And (laughs) it's one of those books, isn't it? And Mm. look, it's very likely that a considerable number of listeners will awaken on Christmas morning to a copy of what we now call the Guinness World Records. Mm. And like last week, you get a sense we're moving towards Christmas when you look at the book charts in November. 2,051 copies of that book were sold in Ireland. And it was there and there. In one week? Because that doesn't always include every bookshop either. So that's a huge number. Which is extraordinary. And and more, as you say, for other reasons. But at least 2,051 copies of that book were sold last week in Ireland. And it's an annual Christmas bestseller. You can kind of set your watch to it. And look, every household in the country has at least one old battered copy of the Guinness Book of Records hiding somewhere in the house. Mm. It's used to, you know, answer answer the, the row with the Christmas dinner table or whatever else. Uh, and it's the best-selling copyrighted book series of all time, which is no wow. small achievement. So, look, when you go through it, there are some records in the book that are eternal. There are others which are contested all the time. And I think what's so weird about the book is it survived the internet. Mm. You know, it survived the age of Google. I mean, you can Google any question now and get an answer pretty much instantaneously. But I think the internet has actually kind of encouraged the popularity of the idea because you get all these weird and wacky videos, you know, on YouTube and the like of people or communities trying to break Guinness World Records. Mm. So, yeah, it's one of these strange things that has survived uh, from a a more innocent time into the age of the internet and is still going strong. I tell you what, some of the records are truly bizarre, but what is more remarkable about them as well is that they are so assiduous in making sure that they're all checked. Which is amazing, isn't it? Imagine that was your job, you know, checking uh, Guinness World Records. But some are so... So bizarre. I mean, I'm actually frightened of mentioning this man's name on the radio. There's one guy who I won't actually name uh, who has sued over 4,000 companies and individuals. I mean, isn't that an extraordinary so way? That he has the world record for the most lawsuits filed. <laughs> yeah, including against well, Bill know, actually, Gates. We, we better name him actually because it, on the off chance that he takes issue with not getting his due regard, his yes. name is Jonathan Lee Richards. Congratulations, Jonathan Lee Richards on yeah. your, your 4,000 lawsuits. Uh, the world record for, yeah, the largest amount of lawsuits is him. Robert Wadlaw who stood at an extraordinary 8 feet, 11 11.1 inches wow. will probably always be recalled as the tallest man in history. But as you said, I mean, they check them all. They take it deadly serious. And the Guinness World Records themselves, they say Guinness World Records has an expertly trained records management team who undertakes substantial research and verification checks to confirm whether a new record title has been achieved. When you submit an application for a new record title, records category specialists, imagine that was your job title, you know, well, yeah. carefully assess it to confirm whether or not your proposal can be accepted. When you submit your evidence for a new or existing title, the records management team run comprehensive checks on the evidence to confirm whether it's sufficient to demonstrate that you have achieved the record title in question. So in other words, there's a process. There's a very serious process. And while some records are easily verified, I think others, especially around achievement, uh, prove a lot more challenging. I tell you what, I've, I've seen it happen because I was present and participant in the breaking of a world record uh, when I used to work for another station in this building, a, a certain yellow branded station. Uh, one year I participated in Shave or Die where we broke a world record for the number of heads shaved simultaneously. And they were so assiduous going around, like going like, okay, well, how many heads are there in that row? Can we count that as being shaved because you didn't get the whole job done on one side? Like they're, they're very fastidious in making sure that... And does the record is, stand? 
Uh, I don't know, but I've still got the certificate <laughs> at home somewhere, so I'm going to I'm going to say that it does, uh, or else I'm going to have to change the bottom line of my CV. Um, the name, of course, suggests that there is a relationship with the brewery um, Guinness. Obviously, yeah. how, how did that come about? You know, as the name would suggest, it's connected to the powerhouse brewery Guinness. And the weird thing about Guinness is it's not a company that ever really needed, for a company that's so good at advertisement, and mm. you know, as far as Irish industry goes, probably the best Irish advertiser was Guinness. They never really needed to advertise. And they actually took out their, their first ad in the papers in 1929. Now, when you remember that the, the, the company dates back to 1759, it's yeah. incredible that it's so long before there's an ad in the paper. And when there is one, it's a very Guinness ad. You know, it's very, very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and it begins, this is the first advertisement ever issued in a national paper to advertise Guinness. I mean, that's the ad. <laughs> so, so Guinness don't need to advertise. They never yeah. had, but they've been so good at it. So the Guinness Book of Records, it's not born as an advertising it's gimmick. It's not, okay. Uh, instead, Sir Hugh Beaver, Managing Director of the Guinness Brewery, he's shooting with friends in County Wexford, as you do, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a fine weekend hobby for the sir. And then a row, uh, a row breaks out amongst these men among, about all things, you know, the fastest game bird in Europe. What is it? And it's a kind of row, you know, you could easily answer today. Yeah. And they thought it was a kind of row you could easily answer by a glance in a book. That book didn't yet exist. So the idea of the Guinness Book of Records uh, is born on a, so a shooting trip to County Wexford. Something to solve a pub row. Uh, when it lands on shelves, it does, in ways that it doesn't anymore, it does include a fairly distinctive symbol. Yeah, the first, first edition, up. 1955, uh, it carries that great harp, the Brian Baru harp, which is, of course, the, mm. the, the emblem, uh, the national emblem of the state, but also yes, yeah. the registered corporate logo of Guinness, so flipped. Uh, and while that intended as advertising, it kind of does look very much the first edition of the book, like a Guinness advertisement. Mm. So the company that they that they established, they print 50,000 copies uh, of the first book. And in a strange way, you know, as you mentioned, the, the brewery, isn't it the perfect name to put on a book like this? Because it does market itself as the great settler of pub, pub arguments. Yeah. That's the line yeah. that they take. But Guinness looked to these two brothers, uh, Norris and, and, and Ross McWhirter, twin brothers, sons of a newspaper editor and an obituary for one of the brothers said their father brought home 150 newspapers a week. A week? A week. And the kids just devoured them. And doesn't that make sense? You know, how do you know so much? Well, a childhood yeah. that was spent reading 150 newspapers a week yeah. played some role in it. They're extraordinary bright. I mean, both of them uh, joined the Royal Navy during the Second World War, but then went on to Oxford University together. And they're just obsessive about facts, statistics and the like. And they've no interest whatsoever in the supernatural. All of that. I mean, they have a lovely line when they're asked about it. Uh, why don't you include the most haunted house in Britain? They say, you can't get embroiled in ghosts. I mean, what they care about <laughs> is facts and figures yeah. and that is what they do. That's why Loftus Hall isn't there. Um, <laughs> so these brothers, I mean, as you can probably imagine though, if they're pursuing 150 newspapers a week, that they're obsessive quizzers as well. Yeah. Um, but I'd imagine in a pre-internet time, it takes a, an awful long time to be able to establish for certain what is or isn't the, the, the greatest or the biggest or the longest of anything. You'd probably walk out with a pub quiz if these lads walked in, you know, the, the, that, that kind of talent. And mm. they've an office on Fleet Street in London it becomes the epicentre of this mad experiment and the Guinness World Records has a lovely kind of history of itself and it says after an initial research phase work begins on writing the book which takes 13 and a half 90 hour weeks including weekends and bank holidays little did the McWhirters know that Taking Shape is a book that will go on to become an all time bestseller it's an extraordinary level of work Mm. again it's so important to say this pre-internet age work and they wanted it to be wholesome, so there's nothing rude in there. And as they said, ours is the kind of book maiden aunts give to their nieces. This is a book for mm. everyone. There's no criminal feats in it, so the greatest bank robber of all time or the like isn't there. Yeah. And they were fearful that people might try and replicate or even outdo criminal acts. So, you know, it is a book for all the mm. family, and that's one of the reasons it does so well every uh, year. What's remarkable, actually, is if you go back and look at the original editions, that when you think of the, the publication and the colours and how vibrant it all is now, that it was so understated at the time, because in my primary school, they used to have a copy of the 
second edition. So it, it started in 55. Wow. There was a copy just in the bookshelf in the back of the sixth class room of the Guinness Book of Records 1956. And it is the most boring book. Honest <laughs> to God, like you'd pick it up and you'd go, hey, Guinness Book of Records. What, what, what kind of oldie timey records are in this? And it's just this really nondescript green sort of stitch bound book with nothing of any kind of major. It is stuff like, oh, the fastest game bird in Europe. But there's no yeah. like, who is the tallest man? Who has the most points in the NBA? All of, like all really dull. Um, nonetheless, though, that this um, by modern standards fairly dull work. It brings them international fame. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that they're living double lives all throughout. The McWhirter brothers, they become household names. Yeah, they're frequent television uh, stars. They've got record breakers, great TV show. They're often on the news. You know, when, when, whenever a record is broken, they kind of pop up in the news. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're very well-known figures. But what's really interesting about them, these brothers lived a strange double life because beyond this very accepted place in popular culture, the Guinness Book of Records guys, they're also political activists on the, on, on the right. I mean, Ross McWhirter... Uh, had been a Conservative Party activist. He stood unsuccessfully for them in, in this in the sixties, and then in the seventies, moves really, really dramatically to the right. I mean, he, he is campaigning for things like you know restrictions on the Irish community in Britain, you know, compulsory registration of new Irish migrants uh, with the police, restrictions around renting property uh, to Irish men. So it's so weird, isn't it, that you can be such a well-known public figure for one thing, but you're mm. also you know in the papers for other reasons too. And like the brothers publicly advocated capital punishment for people convicted of terror offences. And there's this bizarre story about Norris, one of the brothers, heckling demonstrations, uh, demonstrators at an anti-nuclear demonstration. And he's shouting at them through a megaphone. Each one of you is increasing the risk of nuclear war. You're playing Khrushchev's game. Moscow is making use of you. So this is extraordinary stuff, mm. but this political activism of the two brothers on the, the fringes yeah. of the right of British politics is, uh, is going on too. To bring us back to where we started though, uh, Ross McWhirter meets uh, an especially tragic end. He's, he's gone down to London. He offers £50,000, which is no small sum of money. I mean, remember what a commercial success the Guinness Book of Records has been. Yeah. But he offers 50 grand to anyone with information. Uh, there have been a, a number of kind of high-profile IRA actions in Britain between 1974 and 1975. 40 IRA bombs in London in that time. Wow. And yeah, 50 grand of his own money put forth. That made him something of a target, of course. Yeah. And on this day, the 27th of November, 1975, he's gunned down uh, on the streets of London outside his own home, which is just an extraordinarily bizarre mm. end, isn't it? Yeah. You know, to, to that story. But, you know, what began as this project of two brothers sitting in a tiny little office in Fleet Street and a print run of 50,000 copies. Now, mm. you know, a lot of us would be very, very happy to move 50,000 bucks. You know, <laughs> yes. Including, well, but yeah. I mean, 50,000, that's the first print run uh, mm. in, in, in the 1950s. It's gone on to be published in 23 languages. It's, you know, inspired museum exhibitions and much more besides. So it's eternal. It's eternal. And as we said, it survived the internet. It is not extraordinary in itself. If you would like to help Donald Fallon achieve a print run of 50,000 copies, <laughs> uh, Donald Fallon has a book that you can consider putting in a Christmas stocking. <laughs> yeah. Donald, do your plug. Tree Castle's Burning, A History of Dublin in 12 Streets. Available in all good bookshops <laughs> And some rubbish ones as well. Donald Fallon is the author of that and Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia and of the Community Books. He's also the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast about the history of our capital city, which you'll find anywhere you get your audio online. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PWC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.